All right, we're going to be in the part two session of Luke chapter 11. In the beginning of Luke chapter 11, I titled that message a vital lesson. Because that vital lesson was the lesson of prayer. And it's a lesson that keeps on continuing to be needed to us all, because it's something that many lack on in life every day, I think. And, and if there was something that it was a universal need, it was prayer, it was worship, the word of God, all of these things are things that are in constant need within somebody's life. And, and it doesn't matter how knowledgeable we are, it doesn't matter how strong we might be or think we are in our walk with the Lord. We can always pray more. We can always get just a little bit closer than we ever have. And that's really what the Lord wants. He wants us to get closer. And he allowed us to do so by giving us his word. And by giving us his word, he gave us the ability with the knowledge of what to pray for and how to pray. Because of the problems with prayer sometimes is we can pray for the wrong things. We pray for things that, that we want out of our carnal desires. And the Lord taught us those important lessons of what to seek for and what not to. And especially of those in our prayers. And again, what a, what a blessing it was to see all of those things. And, and what a blessing it is to know that, you know, that, that the apostles were there to give us this in writing. To, to see the greatest teachings that we could ever have. And that we have a loving Father that is there for us at all times. That He is living and active just as much as today as He was then. And, and so again, last message was in the beginning of chapter 1. A vital message, a vital lesson in the model of prayer. And with the model of prayer came also... The model of action, which is what our Lord was. He was always in prayer. They, the apostles, when they went looking for him, they, they would normally find him in prayer. He was always healing somebody. He was doing something for someone. And this was all within a three-year period, three-and-a-half-year period of his ministry. And so with that, we're going to continue to see, again, vital teachings. And if there's, if there's something to a, to a title that I could give, it would be, again, within the title of something that is vital, vital to us. And we're going to be seeing, again, with the vital teachings of, of prayer and with our actions, there's going to come other things that he, that he brings to our attention of, of keeping the word of God. And to also be looking out of the th- looking out for the things within this world that he's going to expose to us that is also vital that we stay away from. So as we continue, we're going to be what we're going to be looking at is Luke chapter eleven, and we're going to be starting the part two series within verse twenty four. And and so I want us to look at something here. Uh, as we looked at before, the Lord was talking about a house divided that could not stand because what had happened was was that he, as he was talking, people were thinking in their minds without saying out loud that his power came or, or his power that he was casting out demons by the name of Beelzebub, who was considered the prince of demons. And and what's interesting is the prince this prince of demons by the name of Beelzebub means the Lord of flies. And and we all know that flies are uh 
Yeah, flies are not pleasant by any means, and we know certain substances that flies like to surround themselves by. And so this Beelzebub was the lord of the flies, okay? And so people around him were saying that he cast them out by Beelzebub. And he had to set the record straight that how can, how can Satan cast out his own demons? How could I use the power of Satan to cast out his own demons? That makes absolutely no sense because his power came from God. Simple. And so... As he was going through all of that, he was explaining to them that a house divided cannot stand. Okay, whether it be uh, any house, good or evil, he had to explain that. It, it cannot stand. He said, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Is what he said, which was a very interesting way of putting it. <laughs> Who do your sons cast them out when they're casting a demon out? Ah, that, that probably had to have hit home. So let's take a look at what else he has to say here in regards to the issue. In verse 24 to 28 he says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. And then he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than, the, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You know, as the Lord was explaining everything, this, uh, a woman from the crowd yelled out a blessing to his mother. And as many will give credit uh, to the parents for raising a good child, okay, but the Lord made sure that she was directed to a divine connection. And that was God and his word and keeping it, which is the importance of why he talked about demon possession. See, an, an unclean spirit goes out of a man, which is well, how he was able to inhabit him in the first place. He was one who was an open target. Because they know who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And it can be a revolving door. We could take King Saul, who was the very first king of Israel, as that perfect example in the book of 1 Samuel. King Saul had gone astray from God, and, and the Spirit of God was not in him. And King Saul would be occasionally possessed by a demon from time to time. It would take King David and his youth to come and play music for him in order to to uh, to soothe him and to, and to get rid of the demon. So Saul had a, a revolving door within his body of demonic possession. And, and then there was one of the Lord's most devout followers who was Mary Magdalene. Her encounter with Jesus was, was her being possessed by seven demons. And the Lord said that he brings back seven others more wicked than the other. He cast them out and she became one of his um, most devout followers. It, it because, because now she was a daughter of the, of the world's and greatest and mightiest father. These demons will probably never even get near her again because of that. <laughs> and many ask, many ask if a Christian can be demon-possessed. And the answer to that is no. You can be oppressed by them, but you can be messed with, but they cannot take over your body and your spirit. Why? Because when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, 
His Holy Spirit dwells in you. Okay, In the book of Acts, when the church was growing in Antioch, they were being called Christians, which stands for Christ-like, or little Christ's. And when you have an an I A N at the an N or an N at the end of your tile of a tile, that means that you're a party of that place or that person. Okay, so I'm originally born and raised in California, which makes me a Californian. If you're from Australia, it makes you an Australian. Uh, we have our beautiful neighbors to the north in Canada; they're Canadians. Okay, and you are of that nation with a citizenship. But once you receive Christ, you will have an eternal citizenship in heaven. Because you have received him as your father. And just as our earthly fathers, they share DNA with us, we have received his eternal spirit in us, bringing us together with him and one another through him. See, possession can come by being in a certain place and time. And a lot of times it was, it was actually invoked by playing with things of evil. Uh, spirit realms and whatever have you. Because there's two kingdoms in this world. There's a, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of dark. Uh, there is no such thing as a gray kingdom. And if, if someone thinks that they're in one, then it's the dark kingdom that they're really in. And we don't want to play with things or with people that attract that realm. You know, that certain company that we keep can bring evil and calamity into our lives. Our Lord is a God of invitation. And he invites us. But we must invite him in our lives. And, and, that, and by that, we eliminate the darkness by his light inhabiting inside of us. And in verse 29 to 36, it says, And while the crowds were quickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment of the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah's. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. You know, the Lord was giving some important examples of the Old Testament of those who uh, repented to God even with less evidence than what uh, uh, these doubters were looking for. These Pharisees, these were people that were questioning the Lord. And, you know, Jonah, he had less evidence than Christ did, and he caused a, the, a whole bunch of uh, uh, people to, uh, to repent. 
But you see, the Lord, he already gave a bunch of signs that no one could ever, yet they still question his ability. And, you know, his mention of Jonah only had a comparison of days because Jonah's didn't compare to the Lord's. You know, Jonah was chosen to warn the most brutal people and nation on earth at that time to repent. And he tried to run, but was thrown over a boat and swallowed up by a great fish for three days that he spent in, in his belly until it vomited him on shore right where he was supposed to be. He simply said, in 40 days, you will be overturned, repent. And 120,000 Ninevites repented. And these were the most brutal people around the world at this time. Now, what was the sign? You know, I, I'm not sure that he... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he was not looking right after three days in the belly of a great fish. You know, hanging out there in its stomach acids and water. Um, there's a good chance that the pigment of his skin turned pale and his hair was lost. And, you know, maybe a little greenery involved there. <laughs> he, he preached the shortest evangelical message in history. And he caused the most brutal pagan nation to repent. And then he spoke of the queen of the south. Okay, this was the queen of Sheba who visited King Solomon with his wealth and his splendor. And most of all, his godly wisdom. So she could see for herself. And, and, and she was astonished. But yet Christ is much greater than all of them. But you see, they didn't like that Christ was above the richest and wisest king who built the first temple. That was not in their hearts or in their minds, that, that Christ was was greater than the, the the wealthiest and most wisest king in the world at that time. But you see, it shows the lack of light that they were living in. Jesus made known that you don't keep a lamp concealed. See, Christ was that light. The lamp of the body is the eye, which is what reveals us to the light and attracts us to it. I like what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. I love to quote him. The English preacher of the 1800s said, If darkness comes from within a man and prevents him from seeing the light of Jesus, it doesn't matter how bright and glorious Jesus is, he can't see it. A man without an eye might as well be without the sun as far as light is concerned. And I've always heard that, you know, one's eyes are like the windows of our souls. And our eyes give spiritual understanding as well as a desire for sinful lusts. We may at times need an eye exam if we can't see God at work in the world or in our own lives. Because sinful desires are what blinds us to and from Christ. In which again, I mentioned dark and light were, uh, were able to determine it by our vision. Okay, which is which is which that is. Okay, we we are determined uh, by our vision what we see, what is dark and what is light. But when in a dark room or a place for a, a dark room or a dark place for a long period of time, no one can handle light once they're exposed to it at first. But you see, once exposed to the light, exposed to it long enough, they will never want to go in the dark ever again. The ability to glow in the dark is by exposing something next to that object of light long enough to where it's glowing as well. And those who were next to Christ long enough seen his light and shined it as well. Well, we could remember Moses when he went up on the mountain. He got to see God up there and he came down so bright that he was blinding everybody. And so when you're connected to that light, 
it's going to glow on to you. And you will be like that shining star in the darkest of places. And as we continue, let's continue to see the, uh, the, the strong teachings of our Lord in verses 37 to 41. It says, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. See, if there was an appreciation of the Lord, it was his will to go to someone's house for dinner. And yet even a Pharisee who was an enforcer of the Jewish laws, you know, and and the Pharisees would always be there to question Jesus, to challenge him, and even tried to kill him by stoning him in some occasions. Yet he visited those who requested his presence. And let me remind you that he still does to this day. Now, a lot of us wash our hands before dinner, okay, for the outlook of sanitary reasons. But the Jews here, when they, when they, when he was astonished that he didn't wash before, it wasn't in the sake of that. The Jews, and especially the Pharisees, did that out of ceremonial washing. Because there was an outlook of touching something that was unclean. And then touching something else would carry that uncleanliness. So those who were real strict would do the ceremonial washings even in between meal courses. The, the Pharisees would do the, their acts publicly. And required others to do what they were doing as well, which made them the ultimate uh, legalists. And they considered themselves as clean, but you know they worried more about their exterior selves. You know, how they looked from the public's eye when the Lord himself sees the inner thoughts and hearts of every person. Now, I have to wonder if this particular Pharisee knew that Christ could read his thoughts. See, I'm sure that many would stay clear of him due to that, due to daily thoughts. You know, as you're in front of the, the Holy Messiah and Savior, knowing that he could read your mind. Jesus called them out without fear and compromise, though. Little did they know that there was no need for this ceremonial cleansing, you know, especially from the Lord. Him entering that Pharisee's house cleansed the place and blessed it beyond uh, that it's ever been blessed before, as the rituals were done. He was taught truth, and, and hopefully he was convicted and awakened by his normal thoughts of righteousness. See, the outside of your plates and cups are washed, but the insides are dirty, dirty, he said. Giving alms to the poor in in what God has provided you and walking away with the thought of I'm good now, I did my deed of the day was like the dirty dish and cups that that someone ate or drank out of. You know, offering a guest a, a drink from that filthy cup, you know, yet you knew it was dirty. They didn't know it, but you did, but made yourself look good and righteous. It's amazing. I have an aunt and uncle who have had their cars. Both of them had their cars for over 30 years. In my uncle's car, yeah, it's even from the he bought it brand new in the early 80s. And to this day, the car looks like it was brand new. He would continually wipe it and wax it and he used to keep it covered. 
uh, my aunt's car was an older car. It was an older model, and at, uh, at some point it had a lot of exterior rust on it. And though my uncle wiped it down daily and kept a cover on it, where my aunt did not on her car, my uncle's car always seemed to be in the mechanic shop more than hers did. Uh, because, again, the exterior never showed what was under the hood. The Lord seeks the depth of our hearts over that of our exterior doings. And, and motives, and, and the reason was because he did the same, see? Though he deserves the glory, he modeled in perfect form. Our Lord and Savior did. He was the ultimate role model. And yet he deserves the glory, but yet he still came down in a humble presence. And, and what more... What more of a role model could we could we want and look for and, and to be like? That he didn't he didn't even bring attention to himself, but he always showed the attention to other people. May God help us to show a little more attention to him nowadays. As we continue to look at verse forty two to forty six, he says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and, and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Well, now it gets interesting, because as now they're in the defendant's seat, uh, the Pharisees and lawyers who, who upheld the Mosaic laws were now in question. Instead of being on the other side of the bench. See, one of their laws was as if someone touched a grave, they were considered unclean. And this was found in the book of Numbers, chapter 19, verse 16. They were, they were considered unclean for a week or two, which required them to basically go through a ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus was calling them out on causing a spiritual death by their spiritual rottenness. They wanted all the best, but they refused to give the best. They wanted to be celebrities, which caused both a form of narcissism and most of all hypocrisy. And you take a word, Jesus called them hypocrites, and the word hypocrite in the Greek was a term for a stage actor. A stage actor who changed masks in between different scenes and costumes. And what you seen was not what you got, what you get. What you seen was not what you get with them. And the enforcers of the law were strict on others. But how well did they keep all the laws? Alright, 613 of them to be exact. It's amazing how even police officers at times I've heard, you know, they'll, uh, they'll get tickets for speeding when they're off duty. From another police officer. Even these, they seem to break a law of sorts. And yet these laws were much more strict. See, many use the laws or they twist scripture to justify their own system. And I'm sure that God would be infuriated with those who, who were trusted in teaching and upholding his laws and scriptures. 
So let's see what uh, what else Jesus exposes in verse 47 to 54. Once again, he says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of, of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. You know, he said woe to you a lot, which basically means that you're in big trouble for your doings. Prophets were murdered by rejection, in the Old Testament, just as Christ will be in, in the generations before them, they've seen death and persecution. But you see, he had a harsh woe to the lawyers who kept the knowledge of truth from the people and, and misinterpreted God's word and God's laws. Rules that, that could not be kept in perfection and teaching errors out of their own created outlooks. They were hindering people from God and his word is what they were doing. Can you imagine you as a father or or as a parent, a mother and a father, and someone keeping your child from you, from keeping them from good and leading them into a path of destruction? How would you feel? I remember hearing a pastor who spoke at a church or at a conference or something, and somebody came up to him. And he said, you better be right about this stuff. Because I'm relying on everything that you tell me. And that hit home for him, as it should with any pastor or Bible teacher or evangelist. Now, if I could just briefly speak for myself, and if I could speak from the heart. Uh, I want to treat every sermon that I teach with fear. Kind of like that of a heart surgeon. They're working to repair a heart condition. And it's done with the ultimate precaution. Because why they're dealing with somebody's life. Well, as a pastor teacher, I'm not just dealing with somebody's life, but I'm dealing with their eternity. I, I cannot afford to error God's word. But some out there want to teach their own agenda. And that's very dangerous, as we see the anger in the Lord with that. All that I can do is teach it for what it's saying. Because no one can make the word of God any more powerful than it already is. The only thing that man really does is water it down. And we do that when we teach our own propaganda. I am called to make him known. And to help point others to him. And that is what I was called to do. And again... When we read the, the writings uh, of Luke here, of what the Lord had said, is there a chance that maybe 
conviction was felt somewhere. The Holy Spirit speaking to you. Speaking to you to receive Him because the Lord loves you. The Lord died for you and He wants you with Him in eternity. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants us all with Him. And that is again the goal of this ministry. To help equip the saints. To to teach the Word of God simply for what it's saying. And to bring people into a relationship with Christ Jesus. And I pray that if you heard this message... That maybe the Lord touched you somewhere. Maybe you're walking with Him right now and you're, you feel like you're doing pretty good. Well, maybe He've touched you somewhere where you feel that there might be a gap that He could fill for you. If you're not walking with Him, then may you receive Him because tomorrow is never guaranteed. And if I could ask the question... Do you know that you would be able to go to heaven if something were to happen within minutes or within a day? Well, I want to give you a form of, a, of assurance that you can go there if by chance that you receive the Lord as, as your Lord and Savior. So I want to give you the opportunity right now to receive Him into your heart. And you could do that by saying the simple prayer of repentance after me. Dear God, please forgive me, Lord. Please forgive me of all of my sins. I confess to you, Lord, that I am a sinner. And Lord, I ask that you would receive me into your kingdom, Lord. As Lord, as I receive you into my heart, I receive you as my Lord and my Savior and as my Father. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for me and my sins. And giving me a place with you in eternity. So may you receive me now, Lord, as one of your own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I pray that if there was anybody out there listening, that you said that prayer because it's the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. And I want to make sure that we get to meet one day in in God's eternal kingdom that he built. So I want to invite you to continue to follow along as we continue to venture through the word of God. And that we might together grow with one another and grow through him and with him. As he is the greatest father you'll ever have. So may you seek him diligently at all times. May God bless you.